Well, the one it was exclusive of baseball was of Muhammad Ali when uh, I came across him. And I wanted just to talk to him about Leon Spinks a little bit. So I see him going through the lobby of the Las Vegas Hilton one time, and we're he's got a big line of people behind him, of course, and I'm trying to get to the front of the line, and we're going through casinos and, you know, machines and stuff. And finally I get to the elevator and tell him who I am, what I'm doing. He says, get on. And he says, what do you want to know? I thought, man, this is going, this is, just, <laughs> this is too easy. <laughs> So I asked him a few questions, and then he says, okay, I've done you a favor. Can you do one for me? I thought, oh, brother, what, what is he talking about here? Mm-hmm. Well, he this was the year that he was delivering commencement addresses at Harvard and Oxford. He wanted me to hear what he was going to give to the second group. He had polished up the first one, you know, I guess, and, and uh, I was spellbound. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best podcast in baseball, brought to you by Closets by Design of St. Louis. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould, joined this week by Hall of Fame baseball writer, St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Can I say institution? Is, is that is that a compliment? Institution? Could be either one. I think so. <laughs> maybe I should be in one. Yeah, <laughs> legend. How about that? Right. St. Louis Post-Dispatch <clears throat> legend, Rick Hummel. Rick, we are recording this podcast in person. It's the first time I've recorded a podcast in person in more than a year. But what a better place. We're actually at the press box named for you and Bob Brake, which uh, has been here since 2006 when the ballpark opened. And you have come to work in a press box named for you almost every game since for 15 years. Now, 50 years at the newspaper. What when you think about how many baseball games you've seen, what keeps you coming back? A few things. First, that every game is different, despite the the fact that some fans probably think that the Cardinals' recent swoon <laughs> says, "Well, I've seen that game before." Well, no, you haven't seen it before. It was a little different, you know. Different pitchers. That's a you know different starting pitcher every day. It isn't like you have the same quarterback out there all the time. Or the same lineup out there all the time, but there's, you see stuff, every game almost. You're thinking, well, I've never, I haven't seen that before. Like the other night when they're playing Arizona, and a guy, they're, they're losing by two runs in the, a late inning, and a guy at second base, and the batter bunts for sacrifice to move him to third. But why? You're, yeah. st- you're still, you're <laughs> yeah. still two runs behind. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, they're. There are things that, that make you scratch your head sometimes, and then there, there are plays like like Arnado can make a play. You'll think, well, I haven't seen that one before, you know, where he, he runs halfway in the, in the left field and then catches the ball that's back to the infield, chest high. I mean, you know, basket catch, slides, misses an onrushing left fielder who can run into a wall and break it in O'Neill. <laughs> <laughs> Something different every time. Have you enjoyed... T- telling the, the stories of games as much as the stories of people. I know how much you adore the game of baseball, and I, maybe that's a place to start. Have you Has your fondness for the game of baseball grown the more you've seen it? Yeah. Um, I, I like, I've really enjoyed being around you for the last 20-some years because you've got a different perspective on the game than I have a lot of times, and it's, it's a good perspective where I might get bogged down in some sort of old-time minutiae, and you'll, you know, try to get me up to speed on some of the, the current trends that, that baseball operates under. I'm learning on the fly. Uh, the um, I like to 
to break down a game, I guess. I, I've, I like writing about people. I've enjoyed all the people I've met, almost all of them anyway. And, um, um, and, and, um, but I like to break down a game and, and maybe try to answer a, a fan's question. Well, why the heck they do that? Well, I try, try to explain to them as, as best we can without being able to go around in the clubhouse anymore, which is hard. Yeah, I find it fascinating that, like, you can learn something. Like you said, every game brings something new. Uh, one of the things I really like baseball about baseball is you can learn something new about it because people are always adding, adding layers to it. Like you said, styles of play change, styles of play mesh and become hybrid styles. And um, I, I wondered about that. I asked the question, clunk, you know, very clunky, like you're probably used to me asking, um, but about, like, who I wanted to ask you who some of the people were early on that you talked to and learned the game from because going from a young fan going to games um, as I, I know you did growing up in Quincy Illinois coming to Cardinal games here um, I, w- I imagine when you crossed that threshold and started writing about them your knowledge of the game opened up in the same way that, like, say, you go from high school English to taking a semester of English in college and your knowledge of literature opens up. There's one way above all others, and it's Whitey Herzog. Every baseball writer should have gotten a chance to spend 10 years covering his teams. I mean, you learn something, I mean, about the game almost every day. You learn something about people how to handle people mm. how to he handles reporters how you should handle managers and coaches and you should handle players every day was something else and and you had more time to devote to that because you didn't have as many other functions that that journalists have now with the online and um you know, videos and podcasts, and I've been spared a lot of the stuff. I don't do very many videos or and no podcasts. So you, know, you guys have taken care of me. But uh, he, he says while he's a guest on a podcast, <laughs> I couldn't put it together. Now, <clears throat> you know, and he would explain to you every day. I'd go in there at three or four o'clock in his office, and he'd be doing his charts from the night before. He kept his own charts. He, he was his own analytics. Mm-hmm. He had different colored pencils for each pitcher, and the next day's pitcher would keep the chart of the previous night's game, you know, where the balls were hit, what, what the counts were, what, you know, whatever, who was up. And uh, he'd, he'd like to have somebody to talk to while I was doing that. And you could talk about stuff you didn't get a chance to ask him the night before or that you thought about and, and were still unsure about. And he would patiently ex- explain it, and you'd think, well, hmm, never thought about that. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, he, and you could see how he handled people. Like, he would made a point of talking to his extra players every day, the, the pinch hitters, the reserve infielders, the backup catcher, the guy, the relievers who never pitch, asking about how their families were in this. And I said, I don't have to talk to the stars. I know, I know what I'm going to get from them. I want these guys to be ready. When I call their name, they're going to jump out like it's, they're being, you know, shoot it out. You know, yeah. they're, they're ready. To, they're fired up, you know. You know, why do you talk to me today? And he says, I'm doing, how are you doing? And, we're, you know, let's go. And, and, yeah. and uh, uh, he said, I don't, I don't need to talk to the stars. And he did, but he didn't need to. Um, and we went along like this for a number of years, and then there was one thing that particularly I, I could not understand why he did it. And I waited till the next day to ask. I said, well, why, why did you do that? It doesn't make any sense with all the stuff you do before. And he, he put his thumbs in his 
felt loops like he usually does when he had something profound to say and says, hum, sometimes you just got to roll the dice. <laughs> so, oh, oh, great. <laughs> Thanks for the explanation. <laughs> how was he at, at challenging questions? Like, how was covering Whitey at times when they would lose or when something would go awry and you'd have these conversations? How, how was he? Because we see managers in the Zoom age respond I mean, they're just very differently to, to challenging questions these days. Well, he was better when they lost or when they got their the snot kicked out of them, you know. <laughs> He'd say, well, good thing it only counted as one. <laughs> <laughs> was he – and he he enjoyed el- elaborating on things. Like, like he was ball talk before we had a phrase for ball talk. Yeah. And it, it wasn't – you know, sometimes here we are – 30 to 40 years after he's managed and the game seems much more complicated than it should be. Mm-hmm. He, he won he went to three World Series in, in five seasons six seasons actually and, and with his team maybe hitting a home run now and again. I mean Jack Clark was here for two of those seasons but he was hurt in both both those seasons that, that they won and the one they didn't win he was hurt every year um, but uh, he, he had a way of you know talk about manufacturing runs they, they would you know infield hits Stolen base, bunt, sacrifice, fly, and then one nothing, game over. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he um, he just broke it down. Where it, I mean, he could play. I'd like to see him manage a, a game against an analytics manager like, well, let's say Dave Roberts, for instance. Is um, the, the Dodgers are very analytically mm-hmm. inclined, and they've been successful. They got good players too, by the way, and good pitchers. Yeah. But I'd just lots see, of money. I'd like to see why do you take on those guys. And or Leland take on those guys managing the way they used to in the in the 80s, and see how that went. You know, using their, I wouldn't say seat of the pants approach, but very well thought out, game planned, all situations covered in their heads, not on some spreadsheet. Well, in on those sheets that you watched him draw, he would use those for shifting, right? I mean, like there were times when he would use those to guide not only like how we pitch this guy. But if he would see trends, that that was one of the things that like Dave Duncan did. He had sure. those big charts, and like you know, there's this notion now that like shifting came out of the ether or out of Tampa Bay and arrived with you know Joe Madden to to you know combat David Ortiz. But no, I mean it's I mean Lou Brodeau shifted famously. The Cardinals shifted and negated you know Ted Williams in a World Series. But that's what he was doing, right? That was part of what he was doing. That was part of it. They wouldn't exact. You wouldn't have the third baseman playing in right field like Manny Machado does for the, <laughs> well, the, yeah. for the Padres. But uh, yeah, uh, but yeah, he would use those things that way. But in those days, more pitchers could throw the ball where they were supposed to to make these shifts work. Mm. Like, for instance, the other night, Alex Reyes is pitching, and he, he's an excellent reliever. But I don't know that he's used to having shifts performed behind him. Like he threw one, he thought it was a ground ball to, to shortstop, and the shortstop was playing <laughs> behind the bag, and it was a base hit, yeah. and then it went into the outfield. You know, he said, "Well, I didn't, I didn't know that." <laughs> and the run didn't score, oh. which is another something that we would with, with a pinch runner who was put in there for his speed, who was, who was, who was standing right next to where the ball was. <laughs> yeah, he didn't seem to think there was a shift either. No, he said, "Where's the shortstop? I better go back. He's somewhere. I know he's somewhere." <laughs> <laughs> Are there? Uh, are there truisms of baseball that after you know being at the paper for 50 years and most of that covering baseball, are there things that you saw in your first game or in that first week that 
still you see true today, or has the game changed that much? I mean, it got, I would imagine it's throw strikes and be efficient. Yeah. Um, you would never see as many walks now as you saw then. I mean, you, you could see there were certain players that could that could coax walks, but, but that was on the players a lot of times. Sometimes the pitchers weren't all that wild. They just, the batters just out, outfoxed them at a particular mm-hmm. bat. It isn't like there's a couple of balls going to the backstop during those at-bats. Because those guys wouldn't be in the big leagues. You had to throw strikes to be in the big leagues. Yeah. Maybe that's the biggest thing. And and you weren't in the big leagues until you were supposed to be in the big leagues. You might be in the minor leagues for three, four, five years as a good good prospect, good player, but there's somebody else ahead of you. And uh, I, I, I do find that even more that I know managers like to get all their players involved now, but I still think Whitey used – more of his bench players more often than than managers do today. Hmm. Uh, especially Sunday afternoon games on this broiling artificial turf which they had <laughs> for, for his career here. And the, the players appreciated, the, the veteran players and the regulars appreciated the day off after a Saturday night game, not have to come out here and play at 115 when it's 110 on the, on the surface. And and Waddy would say, you know, these other guys are going to play like the seventh game of the World Series. I want, and and they did, man. They yeah. kept flying out of there. <laughs> your uh, your first day with the Post Dispatch was July third, fifty years ago, and I believe the first story you wrote was a bike race. Is that correct? There was a bicycle track at Penrose Park in North St. Louis, and um, I I didn't know anything about bicycle racing or a lot of other stuff then, but I found this guy who was competing in the 35 and over division who was probably pretty close to double that so I wrote about him and uh, he, he was from Kansas City at the time but going to Milwaukee as we have done there's a, a, a park named after him with a bicycle course there wow and I said is this this is this a guy that was cycling for years yeah yeah that's the same guy wow <laughs> I didn't I didn't know that so that's yeah. cool how, how how did you go? Did you go in newspapers chasing the chance to write about baseball? No, I, I just, I mean, I wanted to be a sportscaster as a as a kid, but it was talked out of it because of the fact that not many non-player slash athletes, non you know former players athletes, uh, would have a chance to do that, and that was right, of course. So I was. In, uh, informed, I should probably go into writing. But at the time, I didn't know didn't know how to type, which was one of the problems, maybe. But uh, my mother typed my stories for me the first year I wrote for the college paper, and then I learned how to type <laughs> after that. But uh, figured that maybe she couldn't make all the games as I was going to go along here, and uh, <laughs> uh, 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 so, they wouldn't put her on the expenses. <laughs> she didn't have a. She didn't have a seat in the box, you know. So it would have been really interesting to introduce live blogging to your mom and to you. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just wanted to write about sports, I think, and I didn't know about baseball until I, I I hit a year and a half or two here years in here, about less than two years. I got to cover my first game, and I, I covered more games. I do six, eight, ten one year, then maybe twenty the next year, then maybe thirty, maybe forty. I didn't do much traveling. Until seventy seven, and then um, and then I was asked to take over the beat in seventy eight, 
and I said, let me do it for the rest of the season. It was, it was like May, uh, and, and I said, let me, let me, I'll let you know how I like it. Well, I liked it fine. So I said, yeah, I'd like to keep doing it. And then, um, so, but I did not aspire to covering baseball, and, and at first it was kind of intimidating because these are the guys that you, you read about, mm-hmm. watched on a little bit on TV when games were, you know, there weren't many games on TV then, but there were some. And there were, most people had TVs then, by the way, too. <laughs> <laughs> Most people um, had newspapers on their some porch. Some were black and white, but uh, <laughs> um, so I, I didn't really aspire to do that. And then people like Bob Ring, whom you mentioned earlier, and um, the uh, told me that you know, these—they didn't say these guys put their legs, their pants legs on one at a time, but that's what they meant when they mm-hmm. said, "You just go in there and act like you belong here," you know, and uh, you're—and you do belong here. Just ask questions and. <clears throat> Treat them like like men, and they'll treat you the same. And, and as years go along, and you've seen this, you can write something that will be infuriating or at least annoying to a player. But as long as you're there the next day or the next f- physical opportunity to have him see you, you could almost, when you're in the clubhouse again, which you aren't now, you could look over in the corner and see him going, he's looking at you like with that fish eye, and you're thinking, well, I didn't like it. But he is here, so okay, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and that was the end of it. That's changed a little bit, not just with the access being cut off from the clubhouse for the for the time being, and because of COVID and, and protocols and the continuation of some of those. But I, I've I've been I've been interested how it, lately it seems like um, people let frustrations fester a little bit. It used to be you'd go in there and you get it over with right if they were frustrated with you, tony was frustrated with you you were going to hear it the next day or soon after um many many players from that general you know if if, if scott Rowland was frustrated or some of those players already sanders if those guys had an issue with something you wrote you were likely going to hear about it the next day man some of these some recently i you know they they, they sit for months you know um they they don't address it and it gets worse before it gets better um but that's partially because like the dynamics have changed too with you know less ac- limited access less conversational access probably social media will tell them exactly what what they think was written right yeah whether the player yeah. read it or not. That's right or or like family will yeah. like relay well this is what was said and so they're that that is when it gets really interesting. Is when what was written is relayed completely different. It becomes a game of telephone, and uh, I I had a I had an example of that where um, something like that happened, and it was probably thirty days of it sitting there, and you know, player not talking to me. I guess I guess you're right about that. I mean, I, I, in, in those days there wasn't any social media. There weren't any. There was no internet. There was no, well. A lot of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and and the newspapers were were more, you know, um, a, a proliferation of newspapers. Every city, said every city had at least two, even us, you know, and, yeah. and most had three, four, and uh, um, and that's how people got their information mostly. We didn't have talk radio and stuff like that, except for Ken Wax maybe here. Yeah. How how did you end up writing your first Cardinals game story? What was how did you get that assignment? I think I was home. I lived in, in Belleville then. Uh, I think I lived in North County then actually. And uh, and um, Neil Russo, who was one of the beat guys, had some issue where he couldn't make it to the park. So I got a call about I don't know four o'clock. Wow! Could I get down to the ballpark? So I I, I dashed down there and 
I didn't know anything about how to get into it. And then so I, I, I went in the regular way, like the, the fans do, and I, I walked down the steps to the box seat railing, and I hopped over it onto the field. <laughs> and the Expos were in town. And Gene Mock was standing there, you know, the veteran, very successful, legendary manager, but crusty manager. And he's standing there, and he surely must be thinking, well, who is this Yahoo? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. I would hopped over. I'd, saw, I'd seen one guy that I remembered as a Cardinal. It, it was Boots Day. He used to, was playing for the Expos. Then. So nice. I was going to go over and talk to Boots Day and tell him who I was. And, and I remember seeing him play for the Cardinals. But I, Gene Mock intercepted me and, like, who are you? <laughs> and what are you doing here? Did you have a credential? I had a credential. I, had a, I guess you could tell that I, I, I sort of belonged there, technically belonged there, <laughs> yeah. but not really. That's amazing. <laughs> how, how long before you were confident using a word like Swatsman in a game story? Uh, or Extrogen? Well, it seems... I think pretty early on, maybe because because we were an afternoon paper for 13 years when I was after I've been here, and so I, you had plenty of time to concoct some of these things, you know, overnight. <laughs> no too much time to think. You could, you could let the words marinate a bit. Right. They don't they don't come spilling out necessarily the same way as they. Do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to ask how you're a different writer, but I wanted to ask first, how much were you influenced by Bob and how he wrote about baseball? Well, he was different. He, yeah, he yeah. was. Um, I, I don't think the. It was a great grammarian, but many, many long sentences that that meandered here and there. You know, there were there were certain items he wanted to get into sentence, and he and he. There was just a different style of writing then. A lot of guys wrote like that, I guess, when he was starting out. And but he, he was very thorough. Uh, he knew the game, um, and uh, he. He had a little temper. If he didn't like what was going on, he didn't mind letting them know. And uh, uh, and but he but he taught me a lot just about about being a man, just going in there and, and doing what I'm supposed to do, and not worry about what these ball cards look like or from these players or how you know how famous they might be. They just just, just talk to them. That was a great piece of advice that the late Joe Strauss gave me pretty early on um, when I had somewhat earn my stripes with him so you know about 10 years in <laughs> no um he uh, he he told me i was trying to get um a description or i was trying to get an answer about what had happened on the field and he knew i was frustrated because you get these runaround answers and everything like that and he said just write what you saw and write what you know is true and you don't need them to say you don't need tony to admit it you don't need the player to admit it you don't need that just write what you see and he goes you're the expert now he said you saw what you saw and you know what you saw write it that was such a like it was such a way to it was great it was great it was so like freeing because it was like i don't have to you know chase after an explanation to then refute i just can write it that's what uh you were familiar with Joe Pollack, the great theater critic yeah. and food critic and former sports writer. So it isn't like he didn't cover this stuff. And you know, baseball writer, critic, as I felt the skewer yeah. of. Oh, well, I didn't know about that. <laughs> anyway, he said one point to me, he says, I don't have to go down and talk to the actors after a performance at the at the Muni or something like that. 
I, just write what you saw, just what what you, you described there. And, and he's right. If if you've seen enough games, like there are things I don't know about that have happened, or I I, I have a mistaken interpretation of it. Not as many as when I started out. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's because I've I've watched and and cataloged a lot of the stuff I've seen over the years, and 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 understand why things were done. And, and right, you don't have to have somebody backstop you with a with a quote. You know, might even be one you wouldn't even use ordinarily. Right. You're just trying to break it up a little bit, and uh, um, so that he's he's right, and and Joe is right to tell you the same thing. How have you changed as a writer? You think through the years, besides typing for yourself? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I think. I think one of the things I've tried not to change. Let me back back up a little bit. One of the things I've tried not to change is is to is to make sure that the as best I can that the the readers are informed and entertained. And I don't I don't like to preach to the readers very much. I consider them to be if they've taken the time to read this, then they they want to be they want to learn about something. They don't need to be scolded, you mm-hmm. know, uh, if they don't think the same way I do, or I have to, have to make them think a the way I do. You know, that somebody should make them the way that they think and. Uh, so as far as have I changed, I think um, there's always the, the the running battle with putting together a, a storyline f- format in your head when you have about a half hour to go before mm-hmm. deadline, and and I need to be I still need to be better at that as far as. What what goes first, second, third, fourth, sixth, sixth, and and I know where all I know I want it all to get in, but where does it go? And you don't have much time to draw a graph here. You know, you just got to go. Right. And, and yeah. uh, so I I think that part is has changed. Where I got to be a little bit more organized, shall I say, and uh, and and um, and make sure that the best stuff is where it should be. I have the sense that if we do this fifty years from now, you might say the same thing. Like it's like always that kind of feel like oh I could I could do that a little better I, I think about that too like i i could i could make that i could put that puzzle pieces together differently and make it look a little better well the, the different part about newspapers is now that they want to have x amount of stories on their front page and you might only have three to four to six inches of your story out of a 25 to 30 inch story on page yeah. one and you really don't know how many people are going to go to page five to to run down the rest of it. You know, they might just they're just kind of flitting around. Yeah. And and maybe you, you don't want to put stuff on in your 18th paragraph that you can get into the fifth paragraph and get it on page one where they'll think, oh wow, that's interesting. Then, then I'll I'll go read yeah. it. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. I, I I sometimes put stuff in 18 just to reward somebody who got there. <laughs> <laughs> Or maybe just to reward myself for writing eighteen. In, in the day, you'd have maybe maybe three three stories, you know, with a lot of pictures on the front page, but long stories. You'd have to spread yeah. across the page. It was more of a of a horizontal thing. Now, now there's a lot of vertical involved, and uh, that's just the way newspapering has changed too. So here's something that I've not asked you all these years: Did, when you go to an event, um, Pete, the late Pete Finney, who a longtime columnist in New Orleans. He told me to forever cherish a championship on your beat. He said, not because like you're a fan, but because it's a chance to rise to the occasion of that team. Like because that those 
those stories you write are going to be read. Those stories that you write are going to be kept and clipped and saved. And so, you know, always cherish it, but it's your chance to rise to the occasion because you don't want that to be the day that you have a typo that everybody clips and keeps forever or that you, you know, swing and miss. When you, you've written so many of the historic moments that people and fans from the 80s and 90s clipped and saved, when you were on the brink of something like that, like going to the 82 World Series when you know that one of the teams was going to be a champ or going to 87, did you spend the day thinking about how you might write it? Did you, did you workshop things or did you let it just arrive on deadline? A little of both. I think knowing that there was going to be a deadline involved, you had to have a, a win-lose aspect of, of both these things. But and I don't say I want you, you would wing it other than that, but I didn't I didn't try to treat it too much differently than another game. Um, although the thoughts you've just brought up you, you, you think about, but I thought if I spent too much time thinking about it, I would just get get nervous and wrap myself into a, a ball. I didn't want to I didn't mm. want to be like that. I just want to let it flow. But you do have to have a preparation for, for you have to assume that, that it's going to rain every game, and you, you, better, <laughs> <laughs> you do. Yeah, that, that that is a great piece of advice. Always count on a rain out. Always have something in your back pocket. Yeah, yeah. So, otherwise, I didn't I didn't try to treat those things any differently. Even though, yes, you'll see more people. You knew that all your colleagues we're watching and now with the internet the whole world is watching what you have to write you know I mean that's one of the biggest differences by the way I I branch off is that many years ago somebody would say something to you that would be you know controversial and and often it would never get out of St. Louis you know the the wire services either did or did not pick it up and, and nobody but not anything they they didn't understand as the years went along well i just told you that i said well yeah but <laughs> this is the way it goes that's going to go me so some i didn't i didn't tell anybody but they're going to find out okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you do you and, and did you find that conversations with fans have changed by social media i mean like were you when you're covering the team would people walk up and and quiz you like have bar stool conversations with you if you got in a taxi would would someone know who you were gradually yes yeah. uh, and i always thought if they've taken the time to ask pertinent questions that you should take the time to give them pertinent answers as far as you know I'm, sometimes you have to say i don't know and i i hate to do that but i'd rather not make up anything i just say i yeah. don't know did it feel like you had hundreds and thousands of editors Yes. <laughs> now we have about two, but uh, yeah. because that's just the way I think you know that the papers are now. You're your own editor now. You better be a good one too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no kidding. What uh, you know? Some of the best games don't always make for the best stories, though they they usually do. What were some of the some of your favorite games to cover? That you, I mean, it, does like does Game Six of 2011 World Series? Does that stand out as one that you really enjoyed covering, or um, some? Something from the from '82 or the Ryan Sandberg slash Willie McGee game. That would be one of them. That that last one you mentioned. Eighty in 2011, I was 
I was part of the chorus then. I wasn't doing the game story. You know, I was doing a, a, a sidebar or at large piece or something. So I, I didn't, I wasn't as invested in, in the game from start to finish as, as I would have been mm. otherwise. I think I was one of the scorers even, you know. So, I'm, I'm, oh, right, right, right. And, uh, or maybe I was. But anyway, still, I, I wasn't like planning from the first inning on what I was going to write. And sometimes I didn't know until the game was over what I was going to write. Uh, the Willie McGee's Sandberg game was one of the classics. The, I thought the two, the, the one year I've always thought were the best games I've seen in back-to-back weeks or 10-day periods were the 86 championship series in the National League and the World Series, mm-hmm. which the Mets won both. The championship series, they were down three games to two to Houston, uh, up three games to two to Houston, in Houston for game six and seven. And um, game seven was going to be pitched by Mike Scott, who was accused probably correctly, of scuffing the baseball with sandpaper or whatever he would like to use. And he shot out the Mets early in the, in the series. And the Mets were deathly afraid that that same thing would happen again. And in those days, they rotated the umpires a little differently. If you did home plate the first game, you did game seven mm. at home plate. And Doug Harvey was the umpire. And the Mets must have asked for 20 balls that first game. And Harvey would look at it, and he'd say, it looks pretty good to me, and throw it right back to Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Never wow. been thrown out of the game, and so the Mets fast forward got down three to nothing in the ninth inning of, of Game Six against Bob Nepper, tied it up, and then went I think seventeen innings or something, ended up winning by a run to get to the series. Now we go to the series, and and Boston's got them beaten, and you know the Red Sox collapsed in the extra innings, and yeah, the ball went through Buckner's legs at the end, but the game was already tied. You know they they they've been a wild pitch to score the. The, the tying run. So if, if Buckner even makes the play, the Red Sox might still lose. But that those games, while exciting games, uh, the second one ended about one o'clock New York time. That is not real good on a Saturday night for newspaper people. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is a real bad time for, yeah. for local newspaper people because <laughs> it's midnight here, and your story is written. You got one team that's two runs ahead, and now they're one run behind all of a sudden in a space of about ten minutes. So those. Those two games in that one year stand out more than any other, probably because they they were both excruciatingly tense games, and and luckily one was in the afternoon, the first one at Houston, and then the second one, unluckily, was at night. And it, what what stood out about writing about those games? What what makes them memorable? From like, well, besides the horrendous deadline, well, just how fast you had to shift. You know, you 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 sit there and you give yourself maybe 15 or 20 seconds to think about what you're going to do. I mean, you, yeah. if, you, if you have that long to think about it, you, you just kind of hope, you pray to God that he puts you in the right direction, you know, and so you can get going. Because once you, I've always found once you get started, you're all right. You just got to get started. And then and then you let it rip. But uh, the timing is was just, in, I, people were, you know, in the old days, if you watched the movies and stuff, they'd be, ripping this out of your Underwood typewriter and throwing it across the room <laughs> and putting a new paper and cranking it up and, <laughs> and swearing. And, and shouting out, rewrite. Yeah, rewrite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. What, what, what's an interview that stands out that you've had? What, what's And then maybe it's ongoing, but what uh, what's an interview that you've had that stood out through the years? Well, the one it was exclusive of baseball was of Muhammad Ali when uh, 
I came across him. <clears throat> it, this goes back to my boxing coverage days in the 70s, and, and Leon Spinks from St. Louis was fighting a, a, a fight where the winner was going to fight Ali for the championship, world championship in 78 in Las Vegas. This was 77, like November, I think, that fight that Spinks was at. Ali was going to be there. And I wanted just to talk to him about Leon Spinks a little bit, so I f see him going through the lobby of the Las Vegas Hilton one time, and we're, he's got a big line of people behind him, of course, and I'm trying to get to the front of the line, and we're going through casinos and, you know, machines and stuff, and finally I get to the elevator and tell him who I am, what I'm doing. He says, get on. So we all get on the elevator, keep going up, and, of course, Ali is at the last one left heading for the penthouse at some point, and I'm still on there with him. He says, okay, let's get out here. And uh, he opens the door to the penthouse, and, and he tells his wife, who was Veronica Portion, a lovely lady, that he, she can go down to the, whatever she's doing, and, and he's in good hands here. And, uh, and he says, what do you want to know? I thought, man, this is going, this is, just, this is too easy. <laughs> so I asked him a few questions, and then he says, okay, I've done you a favor. Can you do one for me? I thought, oh, brother, what, what is he talking about here? Mm -hmm. Well, he, this was the year that he was delivering commencement addresses at Harvard and Oxford. I don't know which one was first. He'd already done one, and he had one more to do. And he, he wanted me to hear what he was going to give to the second group. He polished up the first one, you know, I guess. And, and uh, So I thought, sure. And I, I don't know. I can't tell you what he talked about other than the fact it was not about boxing and it wasn't about anything you would think he was going to talk about. It was about leadership and, and a little bit about politics and, and about being a good person. And, and I was spellbound. Wow. And, and this was like the whole process took 45 minutes to an hour. And I said, I, you know, I don't have anything to add there. I think it's great. I really did. I didn't. Yeah. And, and, uh, and we shook hands. And that was the first and last time we... We talked, but I, I was, that's 44 years ago, and I'll never forget that. What a moment. And, uh, and and I don't think that many writers had the opportunity, and it was just one of those luck of the draws where he had some time, uh, and he had an audience, and, and, and he, he the first topic I brought up to him seemed to be of some interest. And, of course, as we later find out, Spinks wins the, the, the fight, the yeah. first fight, and then loses the second one. But uh, I... I will always treasure that interview, and, and nothing even comes close to that. Yeah, I was going to say that's probably hard for baseball to rise to that level. I mean, you've obviously talked to, like, Hank Aaron. That would be, you yeah, know. I, I have interview, interviewed him, but not at tremendous length. I mean, he knew who I was and, yeah. and, and where I was from. I'm trying to think about the baseball aspect of that. Maybe, um, oh, boy, uh I mean, there's so many interviews you do here with, with the Cardinals that some last a long time and some don't. Yeah. I mean, Ted Simmons was always one of my favorite guys to interview because he was very thoughtful about a lot of things, too, and and adamant about some things. I guess I guess that my favorite interview was with him when he was playing first base one night and didn't have a good night over. He was not a good first base. He was a catcher. But for some reason, he was Red, Red put him over there one night, Red Shaney, and he made a couple of errors and got booed. And after the game, he's talking, and then now he's going on a rant about it. Well, I didn't ask to play here, and blah, 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 and the fans are lousy, and they're you know, worse fans, and you know, whatever. And, and we're an afternoon paper then, and I'm, 
I hadn't written too much baseball at that point, so I'm, I'm thinking, well, I got kind of a hot story here, but I don't know. what. The, I went back to the office and thought about it a little bit, and um, I thought, I'm going to tell my editors what I have here. I don't, I don't, I don't know him that well mm-hmm. <coughs> yet to, to go ahead and run this. I don't know if he meant all of it. So I did a I, – you wouldn't do that now. You'd just go ahead and run it. But I did a, a printout of the, of the story and took it over to him the next night. Now it's a Friday night. It would run in the Sunday paper if I, if I didn't run the story rather than the, the Friday paper. And um, he had criticized the fans, and he's, he was from Detroit. And Detroit was a big, good sports town yeah, yeah. in the 70s. And uh, um, it's about five pages long, and, and uh, he goes through it. One page after the other, hands it back to me and says, "Have a party." <laughs> <laughs> so, so I did, and he got just roasted. You know, when, once he said St. Louis was a bad sports town, that was, and he he had to, you know, double back from that certainly. But he never said he never said it because right. he did. And I gave him two shots at it, and I was glad that I did it. But I wouldn't do it, I wouldn't do it that way again, even though I didn't know him that well at the time. Yeah, and now he's going to join you. In the in the halls of the of fame, he'll be there. I mean, what what does that mean to you to see the arc, not just of his career, um, but and also you know the arc of the perception of his career, and then the quest to Cooperstown that has really, I mean, it's been something that you've covered now for more than half of your time with the Post Dispatch, just about twenty some years, and I was one of his. I guess few champions for a while on these veterans committees that I've served on. Otherwise, he'd have been in by yeah. now. I saw there weren't very many others, but they. I, I was loquacious enough and convincing enough to keep him keep getting him on the ballot every year. These and this would come around every two, three, four years, depending on how they would do the committees. Um, <clears throat> and I would call him every two or three years about this and say, well, "This I feel this is the year." He said, "Now." Oh. He said, who's on the voting committee? And I'd give him the names. And if they were mostly American League, people would say, I haven't got a chance. Because Ted barely played in the American League. He played a couple years with the Brewers as right. well when they were in the American League. And so finally when he got – and he, he talked himself into that he wasn't going to get in. Mm-hmm. And then he finally did. And now he's, he's celebrating every moment. And even though he's had to wait a whole year for his induction per se – and it looked like it was only going to be for family and friends. Now a few people are going to be allowed. He said, I don't care what they do. As long as they don't throw me out, I'm going to do whatever they tell me to do. You know, <laughs> I'm in. And it will be, you know, a culmination more for him, but a little bit for me because I I've, I've, I've fought behind the scenes for this to happen. And I, in my small way, I helped. Yeah. I, I'm, I was thinking about that the other day, that the story of Ted Simmons' career – it overlaps with your career of writing stories like that that that's almost like the entire you know the the arc of the whole thing like from the beginning to the end everything in between him being a scout a manager you know him coming around here and talking i just it's it's interesting just to have somebody so present for the entirety of your career that you know you'll be linked because you wrote so many of the words that then now some of them are inevitably going to be pulled from your stories and put in bronze. Hmm. I hadn't thought about that, but uh, he'd be the one guy who would stay late after every game 
to talk to you if you had a question. Mm. He would. They had these metal lockers, and he would sit there with nothing on. His, his bare butt would be on that metal locker floor, and it had to be cold. And he'd be smoking a cigarette and just kind of gazing off into space. <laughs> and, but he had time for you. Yeah. And and often, you know, he would he would say things like there was a picture that that was talking to Ted one day and the pitcher came by and he was okay but he had some rough times and I wrote that he had some rough times and, and uh, he started getting on me and <clears throat> and they went away and <clears throat> Ted said don't worry about that he's an idiot <laughs> <laughs> I have a I have this pet theory I guess is a way to describe pet theory that right now the athletes in the game have never been better that there are more athletes and more talent in baseball than ever and the game is different because of the factors influencing the game that we've seen you know analytics take over in such a way that now it's a risk management game as opposed to what you described earlier with Whitey Herzog you know sometimes you know instincts and emotion and you know instead of saying this is the right time to try to steal now it's run through a computer that well 70% of the time this is the right time to steal um, you know or how are you adding to your win probability you know the, this kind of stacking on but I still think like that the that the talent the the ability and athleticism we see on the field plays like Nolan Arenado makes or Mike Trout or you know Fernando Tatis Jr. Some of the things that we see or the 100 mile an hour pitches with with movement have never been better. Am I off base? No pun intended? No, no. Bigger, stronger, faster, no question. Uh, better athletes. Now, are they better players? Right. That's to be debated. Interesting. Well, I mean, because the, the the fundamentals have yeah. kind of been yeah. softened because the talent is so great. I mean, there's raw skills incomparable from one this one area to the next. But are were they better players? Are they would they which team would win more games if with that type of mentality playing for them on old time or new time? If you had you know some some talent, you know some skills on the older players. But. I mean, the, the comparison would be like you take the hot shot, hard throwing rookie. And how would he do opposite Adam Wainwright, a pitch maker? That's essentially what sure, you're describing. Sure, sure. Uh, and, I, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that Ted Simmons and Henry Aaron and Willie Mays and, and those guys would be pretty darn good players today, too. You yeah, know? Even, yeah. though, even though a couple of them are 80 years old and some of them are not with us anymore. But uh, um, like Musio used to say, when, you know, He'd be seventy-five or eighty, and they'd ask him, "Well, Stan, how would you, how would you do today if you played?" Hey, <laughs> I'd hit about two seventy-five, and two seventy-five. <laughs> I'm seventy-five years old. <laughs> <laughs> so, in that vein, I'd be remiss not to ask you about the current Cardinals. Are they, in some ways, I mean, they're they're a product of the modern game in the sense that you know they talk about their modern hitting approach, and you know that's had some, you know, well, it's been wobbly as they go. And then they have all this infusion of young players who are just learning to, you know, pitch. And they're doing so at the big league level as opposed to in the 1,200 innings or whatever it was that they would get in the minors. Uh, When you look at the current Cardinal team, do you think some um, aspects of the modern game is why they've been so inconsistent? Sure. I mean, there's two or three guys that that 
wouldn't be playing on a team a number of years ago because they it didn't have the the experience to deal with all the things they're going to come up against. They just had that they could just throw 95 or 98 with a good slider. They could they could strike you out, but could they get you out? Doesn't matter. Oh, yeah. Do you, what does this team need? What do they need to do? Can they just play better and be better? It's nice of the division to wait for them. Except for Milwaukee's waiting for nobody. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair. Fair. Yeah. Um, they need to get starting like Carlos gave them, and then, you know, um, Kim needs to give them. And LeBlanc is kind of a filler, but he did okay. And, and you're going to have to see Oviedo do better, too. And, and Wainwright, it's a lot of pressure to heap on him to expect him to be really good every game because he's 39 years old. He wasn't. He, he nobody. He wasn't really good every game when he was thirty. He was really good, but not yeah. every game. And, yeah. and and, and uh, so they just have to hold on. And it looks like you know we're talking maybe into August for Flaherty and Michaelis and, and maybe even Hicks to come back. Well, that's a long way. That's a bunch of ball games, and a bunch of them are against the Giants and Cubs right off the bat here. Once they get done with these Rockies this weekend, they're, they're, they've got fifth, thirteen in a row at the Giants and Cubs, and that could. That those games could dictate very much where the Cardinals are going to be sellers or buyers when we get to the end of the month. If the Cubs and Giants make mincemeat of them, there's a the word mincemeat. <laughs> then, um, then, then it's time to sell. What's it like to cover a seller? Like, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think I've, I've been here for 18 years. This, is, yeah, my 18th season. And you'll have to your years of experience will have to I'll have to weigh on or I'll have to pull from that quite a bit to to know what it's like to cover a seller. Well, a couple of times they were tried to be sellers, they end up being you know end up getting into the playoff. They, in like two thousand and one, yeah. they they traded Ray Langford for Woody Williams to to uh, San Diego. They were like nine and a half games back, and it was August the second. They weren't going anywhere, and suddenly they're in the, in the playoffs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, well, yeah, I guess Ray Williams things. won about eight and one when he yeah. got here, and everybody started playing better. And even in 2011, they weren't that good when they when they had those trades that they all they got rid of Rasmus and some, and, some, and brought in Edmund Jackson and Dotel and Zipchinski and some guys some some good pitchers to flesh out a bullpen, but they weren't going anywhere. Yeah, they were a 500 team, and then there they were, the world champions. Did you ever think that a lineup, as much as we've talked about this lineup and its need to add somebody over the last few years, that a lineup that had Goldschmidt and Arenado would struggle offensively? Not as much, and Arenado has been. I would say good. He has not been great offensively because he's in his two sixties, you know. But he's hit 15, 16 home runs and he's got fifty some RBIs. Goldsmith has not been great. He's been better lately, but he he will have to be better for this to work. And and I know we're seeing him on the the downslide. I don't want to use slide. The down cycle of a great career. We're not getting the same player. The fans are not getting the same player that they had. That he had was in Arizona. He's thirty some years old. He's a good player now who can be a very good player. Arenado will, is still potentially a great player, a great player in the field, and he's been a, a very good offensive player, but can be better too. So, yeah, they got to be – these are the guys who are going to have to carry the mail. They know that. Do you like that aspect of our side of the fence where, like you said, the, the downturn of a career? I mean, there are players who know that their best game is behind them. But if you cover baseball, you could always say your best story is still ahead, right? You could say that, but would your best stories be – could you do them 10, 12, 14, 15 days in a row at, at a later age? You probably couldn't. 
you might have, I might have one or two really good ones in me at a certain point, but could I reel off a succession of 15 or 20? I don't think I could. <clears throat> yeah, I hadn't thought about it. That, that is that is the other aspect. You do have to, there's, there's no there's no old for four with four K's and you get to come back tomorrow. That's right. usually the end of, uh, of writing. Yeah. Or, you know, some, or you're, you don't get a day off. You're back in the lineup the next day, whether you want to or not. <laughs> <laughs> right. As they look for somebody else, they do need somebody to do the job. I had a bad day. You better get somebody else. No, no, you're back out there tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. La- last thing I want to ask you. Um, so you've had interviews turned down i mean you know bob gibson wasn't always eager to talk and probably had no comment a few times did you ever pull out the muhammad ali card did you ever say hey look i talked to the champ you can spend five minutes talking to me i did not now you're telling me this (laughs) (laughs) don't be afraid you know 15 20 years ago to run that out (laughs) sorry (laughs) no i did not do that nor did i even think of doing it and uh uh, and Bob Gibson, by the way, never turned me down. Uh, oh, okay, I got it wrong. Well, I, I would say once. I mean, he wasn't feeling well at the time, but uh, um, and I've had some great interviews with him. Oh, that's, that's one I should we should add to the list there, if, if I might. I know it's, I'll try to convince us into a minute here, but uh, the year he went in the Hall of Fame, 1981. I went out to Omaha to do a story on him. <clears throat> he picked me up at he met me at his restaurant downtown. I flew into Omaha. We talked there for a while, went home, talked at his house, he had a new house, he's building a new deck, uh, asked me to stay for dinner, I said okay, and I forgot I had to do a radio show, and it took an, take an hour, and he said, uh, okay, we'll wait for you, and um, so we did that, interviewed some more, went back downtown to his bar restaurant, now it's 9 o'clock, and we're leaving, maybe 9, 30, 10 o'clock, and he says, Wendy, to his wife, Wendy. Can you believe I've talked to a sports writer for nine hours? <laughs> and that's that. Ah, <laughs> uh, see, I don't, I don't. No one will talk to me for nine hours, except for you. You, you're stuck though, captive audience. <laughs> you can find all of Rick Hummel's coverage at stltoday.com. He's got the games uh, of Arizona as I head out on the road to Colorado, San Francisco, and Chicago, and then we will reunite at the All Star Game. It will be how many All Star Games for you? This will be the 41st in succession. 44, 41 consecutive. Since 1980, and they didn't play in 94. So. Right, yeah. yeah, and last year. And last year. Yeah. Well, that would be, hmm, maybe that's 40 then. Let me think, 80, 2042. It would be 40, I guess, yeah. So 40, magic 40. There, mile high. They did play in 94, not just not last year. Right, so it's right. It's 41. Right. Okay, 41. Yeah. So 41 at 5,000 feet above sea level. At Coors Field, it'll be good. I, I get to I get to host you for your forty first All Star game a little bit, a little I, bit. I remember the first one being out there, and it was nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, and and Leland was the manager, of the world champion, Florida Marlins then, and they were awful. They unloaded everybody, so he, that was the last you know big game that he managed in, in his life for, oh, for, yeah, for a long yeah, time until yeah, yeah. he got back with Detroit. Then he managed the Rockies the next year after that, I think. Here's a piece of trivia that the Times Picayune asked me once if I would draw sports cartoons for them. And I said, sure, if you send me to the Major League Baseball All-Star Game every year. That was it. I'll draw cartoons. I'll do whatever, a Sunday cartoon, whatever. I just want to go cover the All-Star Game every year. If that, Because I mean, you're not going to give me another salary for drawing <laughs> cartoons. I have to do that in addition to the writing and everything. And, they, and part of it was, like, I think I could get to 
Coors Field for the All-Star game. And then Atlanta, I think, was one of them in there. Um, but they declined. So I never did I never did draw the cartoons for them. I, I was, like, bartering. Well, now you can do it for, for the post-dispatch. Oh, th- maybe I shouldn't have brought this up. <laughs> <laughs> the best podcast in baseball is brought to you by Closet by Design of St. Louis. Get organized with Closet by Design of St. Louis. Update your closet, garage, office, pantry, and more. Call 1-800-BY-DESIGN. That's 1-800-BY-D-E-S-I-G-N. Closet by Design of St. Louis, the official sponsor of the best podcast in baseball. You can find the best podcast in baseball at stltoday.com, along with all the Cardinals Cardinals coverage from Hall of Fame writer Rick Hummel as he begins year 51 here shortly with with a trip to Denver to cover the All-Star game. And all the other stuff we have going on, including chats galore, uh, Dave Matter and Ben Fredrickson have their videos on Mizzou. There's Ten Hockman every day, a video at 10 o'clock in the morning at stltoday.com. And, of course, we appreciate the subscribers to the paper. It's still cool to see your byline in print, Rick. It really is. I, I, I look forward to that. I do, too. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. That brings me to the last question. So the Cardinals will be off in San Francisco. That means it's time for the annual tweet, right? Even though Matt Cain's not around, do you, do you have the annual tweet at Commission Hummel planned? Well, that's a good question. I may have to get him involved. Maybe maybe I'll, I'll, I will tweet on July 3rd that this is actually my 50th official anniversary <laughs> and there's two days one day ahead of uh, two ahead of their series in Colorado maybe I can work that in San Francisco and they work that in that way oh yeah that'd be good that'd be good alright well look Matt for that Matt may or may not care but this is <laughs> <laughs> that is Hall of Fame baseball writer St. Louis post dispatch icon legend I'm going with both but they're both pretty strong they're really strong but you have a press box named after you <laughs> veteran <laughs> He has to get back to work in the press box name for him. I have to get to a flight. Thank you all for listening. This has been the best podcast in baseball for Hall of Fame baseball writer Rick Hummel. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould. Talk to you next week from the road from San Francisco.